So, so who, who least likes washing dishes? Okay, and, and, and who likes emptying the dishwasher? <laughs> um, who likes gardening? Who hates gardening? Who likes pulling weeds? Who hates pulling weeds? Trimming bushes? Um, vacuuming? <laughs> we, 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 could go on, we could go on and on and on. Um, who hates clowns? Because I'm going to write clowns on this board, um, and I'll tell you why in a sec. And I apologize for my writing being illegible at times. Um, how did you get on with the handout from last week? Uh, who, who took time to go through that and think about some of your perceived enemies? Okay, that's what this board's for. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to write some of those things up here. Um, I'm going to imagine some of them, and you can call out some of the other ones, and I will try and hear as many as it is possible to hear. Um, and obviously, everybody had clowns as a perceived enemy, right? No? Um, I, I, I don't like the things. Um, particular sports teams. Anybody have sports teams on here? Particular sports teams? Did anybody have a particular political party as one of their perceived enemies? Yeah, you, uh, actually, let me do this. You don't, you don't have to raise your hands. Should we put up, which should we write first? Should we write Democrats or Republicans first? Tories? All right, let's, 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 let's write the Tory party. And Boris? Everybody know who I'm talking about? All right, and let's write Democrats. And let's write Republicans. Is that fair? Any other perceived enemies? Call them out. The state? <laughs> I asked about, all right, so we're going to put sports teams. Because there's going to be lots of them. We'll put them in, in parentheses. Um, how about any news networks? Who, who hates a particular news network? All right, so some of you hate Fox, some of you hate CNN, some of you hate MSNBC. Um, who hates a particular demographic? Let's change pen, shall we? <laughs> um, Particular demographic. And insert in there whatever you want to put in. Immigrants, blacks, whites, Hispanics. No one here? Okay. There was a hand over there. Okay. So, so let, let, let's, let's group all the driving things together because that's not the only one. People who follow you too close, people who try and steal your lane, yeah? People who, who, who turn when you're turning at the same time. How, how do we group that all together? Let's just call it traffic offenders. How should we do that? Um, what about the insect world? Spiders. Mosquitoes, wasps. Why do wasps exist, anybody? 
that rush really since this is getting bad. Wasps, etc. Um, anything else? Aliens, sharks, snakes, terrorists. Yeah, a lot of nods there. Cockroaches. Too many guns. Not enough guns. Let's be fair on both sides of this. People who are pro-life. People who are pro-choice. Who was at the top of your list? Who did you write down? And how did you begin to deal with the thought that this person, this thing, is a, is a perceived enemy? And what, what I want to do today is I want to try and dig a little deeper beneath some of the things that we've written up there. Um, and and there's, there's one of the things that I, I hate a lot is, is weed, weeds, digging weeds. And I have to admit that I've not been the best gardener um, since being a child uh, when I had to do it. And I had to mow the lawn and I had to wedge and I had to pull weeds. And since I came out here, I, had a, I have a lovely wife who liked to garden and so I let her. <laughs> um, um, but, but recently, um, I've been dealing with weeds. And uh, I paid for, we paid for a weed company, and the weed company told me that we paid them a certain amount of money a month that the weeds would disappear, and after five months, the weeds hadn't gone. And I got a note from them saying that this particular weed you have called Dallas grass, the only way you can deal with Dallas grass is to dig it out by hand. Uh, and so my email to them basically said, so I paid you $30 a month to dig my own weeds out. And so the contract has been canceled, um, and I got down on my knees and started digging these weeds out. And what I realized is, and it, whoever's done this realizes this, is that the roots of weeds go deep. How deep? Really deep. If you, if you dig around it and you begin to use, whether you use a knife or some kind of gardening implement, you can never seem to get all of the roots, and sometimes they seem to go sideways. And whatever I'm doing, and when I pull the thing out, I think I'm done, and I throw it on the path, and I think I'm sure there's a little bit I didn't get. And what I wanted to do was to think about some of these things because I, I, I wonder whether behind some of these things, which are maybe just the surface of things that concern us, there are real deep-rooted fears with roots that run as deep as weeds do. And then if you just trim off the top of the weeds or you trim it off, you took a pair of scissors and just chopped top, top the root, the, chopped the the bit above the surface um, off, you wouldn't get very far, would you? Because the thing's still there and the root system's still there. So, so I, I wonder if, if we erase all of these things and we wrote up some real deep fears on here, that maybe instead of those things, we might say that we're afraid of violence. And we're probably afraid of violence because violence can cause Pain, death, what else? Injury, loss. You end up in the emergency room, it's going to cost you what? Cash, yeah? What if these things are really at the root of every fear? That underneath all of them, 
we're afraid of death. You dig down beneath the surface and you get deep enough. And then you find that what we're dealing with in almost every instance is some innate fear. And I'm, I'm not a psychologist, and last time I was here, I told you I wasn't a, a financial expert, and, 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 but still, still did it. Um, and, and, you know, the psychologist may tell you that fear is innate, that it's instinctive, or that it's something that's meant to prepare you for action. And I read about, um, I think it was a, a back in the 1920s, some awful experiment on some nine-month-old called Albert, Little Albert. Anyone heard of the Little Albert experiments? Okay. What they did in those experiments were they were trying to prove that some fear can be conditioned in the same way as Pavlov and his dogs went through this process of conditioning. They believed that you could condition fear. And, and so in order to prove that you could condition fear, they took a nine-month-old. I don't know whose nine-month-old baby this was. Um, and over the period of the next couple of months, this child was introduced to things like rabbits and, and other pets and, and had no response whatsoever to them. And masks and even fire, I understand to see whether there was an innate sense of fear, and there was no innate sense of fear. So the next step they did was, they took a loud, a metal pipe and started hitting this thing with a hammer, and of course the child starts to scream. And then the next step was, they brought in a little white rat and hit the hammer on the pipe, and the child screams because of the rat, no, because of the sound. And eventually what they do is they take the hammer and the pipe away, and they just introduce the rat, and the child screams. Why is the child screaming now? Because he's been conditioned to fear that. Doesn't even know why it's going on. And they realized that then, if they brought in other white furry things like rabbits, that the child would respond in the same way. This was a horrendous experiment on a nine-month-old in the 1920s, not last year. We don't, I hope we don't do these kind of things anymore. But it tells me why I don't like spiders. I had four sisters, and every time we saw a spider in the house, what happened? Did they go up and they picked it up and they're like, cute little spider, little spider, exactly the opposite of that thing. Pandemonium. Shoes through windows trying to literally, broke, broke windows trying to smash these things. Um, conditioned fear. Whether it's innate, whether it's conditioned, let's try and dig a little bit to see if we can see what some fear really is rooted in. Now, I'd like to put up um, a definition here. And I need your thoughts on this. This first definition, when it gets up. This comes from the Collins Dictionary. Feeling of distress or alarm caused by danger or pain that is about to happen. Let's take a vote. Who likes that definition of fear? No one likes that? It's okay. What's problematic about it? Danger or pain that is about to happen. Perceived fear, okay, so if I see a cockroach and scream, which I don't, it's not going to kill me, is it? So it's not actually pain that is about to happen. Let's go to a second definition. This one's from the Oxford Dictionary. Instead of calling it a, a feeling, it says an emotion that is unpleasant caused by the threat of danger, pain, or harm. What do you think about that? Is that getting a little better? A little better? Let's go to a third one. So we've had talk about feelings, talk about emotions. And the third one from Webster, an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by the anticipation or awareness of danger. Is that a little better? Yes, so we, we fear because we anticipate that something's about to happen. And what if the thing doesn't happen? Does that stop the fear? No, we still anticipate. 
Well, what I want to do is I want to try and adjust this definition even further, just a little bit, by walking through a passage in the Bible, and this is taken from the book of Mark, um, Mark chapter 4, beginning to read from verses 38, 35 to 38. Now, on the same day, to tell you what that's talking about, if you were to flip back in your Bibles to the beginning of Mark, you'll see that it says, Mark 4, chapter 1, he began to teach by the sea, and a multitude gathers, and Jesus is so crowded by this multitude that he gets in a boat. And so he's out at sea, teaching them from the sea in a boat. This is the same day. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Everybody say that phrase. Let us cross over to the other side. Don't forget that, because we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. For he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're afraid. Actual fear, real fear, fear that is valid, they're at sea, in a boat, and there is a great storm, and Jesus is sleeping. Now, we know what happens next in the story, but they don't know what happens next in the story, do they? And so it's very easy sometimes to read the scripture and to look down on the disciples rather than to say that if we were in the boat, if I was in the boat, I probably would have been responding in the same way. Wouldn't we have been responding in the same way? Desperately afraid, we're in a boat, we're at sea, and I don't know what kind of level of storm this was that built up, but it's a significant enough storm for them to say to Jesus, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I want to pause for a moment here and just think about the storm. Who caused the storm? Is there an answer in the text? Was it God that caused the storm? We don't know. In the book of Revelation, there's a passage. It's a great passage, and, and you can turn to it if you want. I'm just going to refer to some things from it for a moment. Because, because there's a passage there that seems to talk about this great cosmic battle that happened or happens or something, and it talks about, about a great sign in the heaven and a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and a garland of 12 stars and a child being born and the tail of a dragon that also appears in the heavens that sweeps a third of the stars down to earth, and the dragon seems to want to devour this child as soon as it's born, and the woman flees into the wilderness. In verse 7 of Revelation 12, it says, And war broke out in the heavens, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but that they did not prevail, nor was any place for them found in the heavens. And the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Important verse, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But this is the bad bit. But woe to you, the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows 
that he has a short time. This weird passage in the book of Revelation, which is always a hard book to understand, seems to be telling us that Satan has been cast out of heaven to earth, and he's mighty angry. Mighty, mighty angry and mad. And some of you may be familiar with the book of Job. Everybody's heard of Job and the book of Job. And in Job chapter 1, it seems as if there's this conversation again going on in the heavenly places when Job uh, is somebody that God's aware of, but also Satan is aware of. And let me tell you something, that the word Satan in the book of Job is not talking about, it's not a proper noun, it's not a name. It's actually a Hebrew word, which is hasatan, which is the, anyone know? The adversary. The adversary. So he's being referred to as someone who is an adversary of who? Us, the people of God. Which is what that passage in Revelation is saying, that we have an adversary who's been cast down to earth and has come and he's mighty angry and he's mighty mad and seems to be actively resisting, perhaps, the people and the purposes of God. And in the beginning of the book of Job, Job um, is someone who is seen as being righteous and blameless and, and the accuser says to God, but that's because you've set a hedge around him. And of course he's going to be righteous because nothing bad happens to him, but I bet you if something bad happens to him, take away that hedge and he's going to curse you. And so God sets the parameters for something that happens in Job's life. And you can read the beginnings of this in the book of Job chapter 1. And it's weird. What then happens is God says that you can touch him, but don't touch his life. And the next thing that happens is there's a raid of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. But two specific things I noticed. First, in Job chapter 1, verse 16, it says, the fire of God falls from heaven. And then in Job 1, chapter 19, it says, suddenly a great wind arises. Is the fire that falls, lightning, something else, the wind that arises, the active work of an enemy in this instance that God has allowed to happen? Is this something that Satan is doing to make Job's life harder? Because if you think in those terms, I wonder if we go back to this story on the lake and we ask this question about the storm that just suddenly arises. Why? What's the purpose of the storm? Because Jesus is so unconcerned about the purpose of the storm or the existence of the storm that he's doing what? Sleeping on some kind of first century pillow. <laughs> um, and the disciples, however, can see nothing but the storm. Let's read on then, continuing the story, just asking yourself the question, what if the storm was the work of the adversary? that God's fine with, but the work of the enemy of God's people for a specific purpose. Let's read on in the story and see if we might be able to find what that purpose might have been. So continuing, Mark 4, verses 39. Jesus then arose and rebuked the wind and says to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. How do we feel at that moment? One moment we were afraid, deathly afraid of dying, of the storm, of perishing, and suddenly in the boat, this man that we've been walking with for 
a short period of time, stands up and speaks to the wind and speaks to the waves, and the wind and the waves obey him. And he says to them, verse 40, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Verse 41, and they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? The first use of fearful, verse 40, is a word that seems to mean cowardly. Why you're so cowardly? Why you're so timid? Why are you being intimidated by something? What's the thing that's intimidating them? The storm. Who may be behind the storm? The adversary, maybe. But say the adversary is behind the storm and the intimidation that causes them to be cowardly and afraid that doesn't touch Jesus is real in their minds. But Jesus says to them, where's your faith? Was faith an answer in this situation to their timidity, to their fear of the storm? Faith in what? Faith in who? What did Jesus say? What was the phrase I asked you to remember a while ago? Let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Was he making it up? Did he mean it? Jesus said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Did he mean let's go and perish in the middle of the lake? No. Did he mean let's get in the boat and go to the other side? And at what point did the disciples say, well, hold on a sec, there's a storm. But Jesus said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. So therefore, we must be going to the other side. Why? Because our God said so, or Jesus said so, and everything he said so far has come to pass. And so let's cling to his word in this terrible, fearful situation. And, and through his word, what he said and who he is, which they weren't fully clear of who he was at this stage of his ministry, faith in him, faith in what he'd said. Faith is an answer in this instance to fear. But look how then it says in verse 41, then they feared exceedingly. So their fear of natural things suddenly becomes a different kind of fear. And what's the fear that you see there? They fear exceedingly. Who are they fearing now? This awesome one in the midst. Who is this? And so there's two answers to fear in this very verse. One is faith in God. And another one is to fear God. Because if we live lives that are in awe of God and in reverence to God and in submission to who he is and recognizing that he has got us and that he holds all things in his hands, and even when we read stories like Job's story, we see that everything that happened to Job was still within the limits that God set. How is that then? Does that help us? But let's read further, because we haven't maybe yet got to the purpose of the storm. When you go to Mark chapter 5, anybody know what happens next in the story? All right, let me tell you what happens next in the story. They come to the other side. And when they come to the other side, they get out of the boat, and guess what happens next? This man comes running out of the tomb. Some of the gospels say this man was naked. He was crazy. He was demon-possessed. He lived in the tombs. Some, some, trans, some, some of the um, um, gospel accounts say that he had been chained in shackles and chains, and every time someone tried to chain him, he would break the chains off. 
Imagine the social media about this guy. Who would you, if, you, if there was a guy like this living in your community, he would, surely he would have been on the board. Yeah, who are we afraid of most? The demon-possessed crazy naked chain guy, right? <laughs> and that would go around and at least be something we could all agree on. But look what happens. He sees Jesus from afar and he cries out with a loud voice and says, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Is that the man speaking? Who's talking like that? The demon, not singular, plural within him, who are apprehending the arrival of the Son of God. Do you think they saw him coming across the lake? Do you think they knew he was on the way? Do you think that the satanic host, because as Ben was reminding us last week from the book of Ephesians, we don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places who've got a sense of God's plan and are doing everything according to that revelation passage to actively resist and to be the adversary with hatred, God's purposes and God's people. So with this impending coming of the Son of Man, maybe the devil is at, uh, upset about this process that's about to take place because when he sees Jesus, he cries out, don't, don't torment me. Jesus says to him with a word, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And he has a conversation. What's your name? Verse nine, my name is Legion for we are many. Lots. And the rest of the story is Jesus casts these legion of demons out of this man and they beg him, don't let us just exist in nothingness. I don't understand the theology of that. But send us into something. We have to possess something. Well, there's a herd of pigs, 2,000 odd pigs. Send us into the pigs. Jesus sends them into the pigs. And what do the pigs do? Straight off a cliff. How wicked is that intent? How evil is the intent there of that legion that possessed the man? What happens next? The people get upset with Jesus because they've just lost 2,000 pigs. That's real, right? They're not saying it's a fair trade because at least that guy's not shouting out in the middle of the night anymore. <laughs> but when they came to Jesus, the one and the man who'd been demon-possessed, Mark 5:15, they see the man clothed and in his right mind. And once again, chapter verse 15, and they were afraid again. Some kind of fear, a different kind of fear. Fear because of who is this man? We've just seen him still the storm. We've just seen him stop the waves. And we've just seen him cast demons, plural, out of a man. And pigs have just killed themselves. I don't know what's going on here. And the man says, he begs Jesus, please, can I come with you? Because Jesus gets in the boat and he's going to go back over the lake. So it seems, according to the story, that Jesus did how many things on this side of the lake? One thing. One thing. Led by the Holy Spirit, perhaps. The Spirit of God says to Jesus, because was Jesus always doing what his father said, going where his father told him to go? Led by the Spirit into the wilderness, maybe led by the Spirit to get into the boat and go over the other side and deal with something that you're going to see when you see there. And this was the man. And it says later, Jesus says, verse 19 of chapter 5, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And what does the man do? Verse 20, he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him 
and all marveled. Look at that. Who was he before? How was his life before? Bound in chains, tied up, outcasts living in caves and tombs, screaming out probably obscenities. And by an encounter with Jesus, who persists through the fear that his disciples have, this man is set free. But more than set free, he becomes an evangelist in one moment. So if in this instance, if it had been the disciples or me, and the storm had picked up, and I maybe thought that maybe I'd heard God say, get in the boat and go to the other side, the storm would have risen, and I would have said to everybody who was in the boat with me, let's turn the boat around, let's go back. And so you don't persist through the fear. And in this instance, by not persisting through the fear and not seeing fear for what it is, because we had definitions earlier, but what if a definition of fear is something intended to hinder God's will? Something intended to hinder God's purpose. What if that's a definition of fear? Then however fear manifests, whether it's in the, the, the innate core of our being when we're desperately afraid of something, or fear that's, that's concocted through a series of, 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 of ways that people speak to us and things people say and things that we watch, and we condition ourselves into this fear, but in any event, what if we find ourselves, because of this fear, not doing what God has called us to do? And would it be interesting if that might be the very purpose of it? Because I said we're going to try and find our way down to the root of this. And what if we look at fear as something, the accuser, the adversary, puts out there to intimidate, to hinder to thwart, to stop us, what? Going places that God tells us to go? Speaking with people that God tells us to speak to? To be friends with people that God tells us to be friends with? To look on people who are different than us, but the fear stops us? And instead of hearing the voice of God calling us onward in love to them, we're immobilized and we're stagnated by the fear that the adversary throws up and puts out there and fills our minds with so we're paralyzed. And so we don't see the stranger because we're afraid of them. And we don't talk to our neighbor because we're afraid of our neighbors. And there are countless other things that we do. We don't pick up the cockroach <laughs> because we're afraid that this thing's going to do something weird. And I don't think it's anything to do with the kingdom of God or anything. But, but, but the point is this, though. It's fear, 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 fear. And I'm urging you this morning, recognize fear in the first instance, however it arises. It's coming through. Someone sends you an email through social media feeds, through television, through movies, through media, through the people you associate with, or none of those things. If you find yourself afraid, ask yourself this question. In this moment, do I maybe still hear the voice of God telling me 
to not be intimidated by this thing that is designed to somehow interrupt God's purpose for me. Because what if the person you're afraid of is someone that God's saying, talk to them at the gym, at work, on the street? Faith in God is the only way that we can overcome this. Because at the end of the day, God is someone who says to us, what matters most, and this is Galatians 5 verse 6, is faith working through love. Faith, substantive faith, the outworking of which is love. Faith would have been the solution to these disciples on the boat. Faith in Jesus, faith in God, hearing the voice of their Lord, calling them in love to something that they didn't know anything about. Probably didn't know this man was on the other side of the lake. And but for Jesus persisting in his trust, absolute trust in his Father, the gospel wasn't going to be shared in the region. And God's chosen messenger for the gospel to be shared was a former naked, chained tomb-living, screaming demoniac. The last person we're going to approach. Absolute last. Luke 4, verse 18 and 19, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. But the adversary resists that. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, but the adversary resists that. To proclaim liberty to the captives, but the adversary resists that. And to the recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, but the adversary resists that. Jesus' own example, because remember there's a point in Jesus' life when he turns and says to his disciples, it's time for me to head up to Jerusalem. And the disciples don't like the sound of this very much because at the end of the day, they think they know what's coming in Jerusalem. What are they perceiving is going to happen to them in Jerusalem? The rulers, the authorities are going to get after them because Jesus is very specific. He says, when we go up to Jerusalem, what's going to happen? The Son of Man's going to be taken by the rulers and authorities and he's going to be crucified and the third day he's going to rise again. And at some point, Peter says, what does Peter say to him? By no means. By no means. And Jesus' response is what? Peter? No, he doesn't. He says, who get behind me? That's right. The same person resisting the purpose of God. And there's a passage in John when Jesus says, it's John, um, I think it's John 14, 30, when Jesus says, I'm not going to talk with you much more because the ruler of this world is coming. And really important words after that, but he's got nothing in me. He's got nothing in me. There's nothing that he can do to stop me doing what I came to do. If Jesus loved his life, turning back would have been the right answer. If Jesus cared about his own well-being, turning back would have been the right answer. Because that's what his disciples are recommending he do. But instead, he says, he has nothing in me. There's nothing he can do. He can't make me afraid in a way that's going to turn me back from the good and perfect purpose of my father. Why? Because Jesus is one who loves his father, wants to do what his father does, 
was to do everything his father's called him to do, loves the world. So he's going to press on despite his fear. And the last verse I want to put up for you there is, is John 10, 27 to 30. And this is to us. And this should speak to our fear. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And so the Lord says to you this morning and to me this morning, he knows us. He knows us by name. He's the one who gives eternal life. He's the one by whose life and death we don't perish. Can you leave it up, please, a sec? No one can snatch us out of his hand. God, our Father, is greater than all. All, even the accuser, even the adversary. And no one can snatch us out of our, father, our Father's hand. Therefore, my brothers and my sisters, what shall we fear? What shall we fear? Because God's got it. God's got us. God's got the situation. God's in control. God knows. When the fear manifests, God's got us. God's got it. God's, God's got the situation. God's in control. And so I pray for myself, for all of us here, that as we press on into this, and there's one more week, one more week, as we're just considering love over fear, that just think about the root and the origins of fear in this way, just this week. That maybe the adversary is trying to stop me doing something that is an expression of the love of God. Uh, they're not back yet, Tyler. We're going to transition here. <laughs> I expect them to be on behind me when the, when, the, when the clock gets down and they can stand menacingly behind. And <laughs> we have an opportunity, as we do every Sunday, to celebrate, to remember the love of God. The Son of God gave his life for us, died for us beyond his fear beyond his will, so that we might have life, so that we might be held securely in the hands of our Father. As we eat and drink the bread and the juice from these two stations or the two at the back, let us do so remembering how marvelous, how good, how great, how faithful, how mighty our God is.